welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Glad you could join us. Uh, between the uh, virus and the protests and everything, we're here. And uh, we're looking forward to our time together in God's Word tonight. We're back in the book of Ecclesiastes this evening. And uh, we'll be looking at a message entitled, How the Lack of Knowledge Motivates Us. How the Lack of Knowledge Motivates Us. You know, it may come as a surprise to you, but what we don't know can actually act as a motivating factor in our lives, especially our spiritual lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, No one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, the law of God reveals to us the secret things belong to the Lord. So sometimes in life, there are things that we simply do not know. Um, it seems like the more we know and the more we understand, the less we know. <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing that way. Uh, someone said, the little I know, I owe to my ignorance. And that's true. And when it comes to the things of God, we might agree that the person who knows or claims to know everything really has a lot to learn. And so tonight we're going to be looking at our scripture text and uh, one person even said, the only thing I know for sure is that I don't know anything for sure. And so tonight, as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11, we'll be looking at how the lack of knowledge can motivate us. So follow along in your Bibles as you look at the text in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 as I read it for us. Solomon writes, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven and even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know, the way of the Spirit comes to the bones in the wombs of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Verse 10, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can be motivated by what we don't know, by what we're not aware of. And Lord, I pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts tonight. Father, we do pray for our country during this time. Pray for our leadership, that you would give them wisdom on how to best deal with not only this virus, but also reopening the country, as well as these uh, riots and protesters. Lord, your word reveals to us the one role that government has in our lives is to uh, protect the righteous and to punish evildoers. And Father, what we see going on in our streets across this country is definitely not from you. And Father, we do pray that you would restore order and give our leaders wisdom as they do so. Pray tonight that you would apply these words to our hearts. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this text, we find two sections, really. Verses 1 through 6 deals with the aspect that faith is the key. Faith is the key. Because a life of faith is needed, especially in the life of a believer. That's the only way you can live your life. 
And that's covered in verses 1 to 6. But in verses 7 to 10, Solomon says that joy is the key. And the reason he mentions joy is because a life of joy is desirable. And so he moves from faith to joy. And so we can see this. But what about the things that we don't know? Can they hurt us or help us? We live in a society that so much of our, our emphasis is on how much we know. You have degree after degree after degree. And people are respected for all their education. And yet tonight, I think in our text, we're going to make six observations. And it's going to point out to us that actually things that we don't know, the lack of knowledge, can motivate us in some ways. And so let's look at our first point here. Hopefully you've downloaded the outline from the church app or you have it there in the email. And uh, you can follow along with us. I'll try to put most of the points on the message uh, on the screen for you. But uh, for the most part, you can just follow along on the outline. But first of all, we see here in verses 1 to 2, he says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven and even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. Well, this first point is the lack of knowledge motivates us to rely on God for the results and the rewards of our labor. For not just the, the results, but even the rewards of our labor. The lack of knowledge motivates us to rely on God. We see the extent of such a dependence here in verses 1 and 2. First of all, in the terms of faith. And, and when we speak of faith, the mere, the mere mention of faith brings up another subject of risk. You know, if, if you knew something to be completely 100% true, you wouldn't need any faith. But we need faith when it comes to our own trust in God. And what he says here is, cast your bread, in verse 1, upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. It's interesting, when you read that, you think, oh, that's a, a Bible phrase. Really, it's not. It's one that's used in Aramaic literature. It's, it's one that's used in different forms of literature. Cast your bread upon the waters. It's a common statement of faith. And it means that there's even risk to be involved, even in ancient times. It's not unique to the Bible. But first of all, he points out to us what this means as far as terms of faith. Well, what does faith involve? Well, first of all, it involves a decision. That's what we see here in the text. Notice he says, cast. In other words, there's a point in life where you have to make a decision. Unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians that are very apathetic they're indifferent to making any decisions, and they never make any decisions. They wait for some sign from heaven or for God to whisper in their ear. Or who knows what they're waiting for? But sometimes you just have to make the decision because the Bible says that there are some things that we will simply not know. We don't have the knowledge about. Uh, popular topic when you're, people are asking questions is, well, how do I know God's will for my life? Well, it depends what you mean by that. There are some things that God expressly states for us that is his will. He desires us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's a desire of God's will. He desires us to flee fornication, to flee immorality, to flee sin. He desires us to pray. There's, there's instruction in us in the word of God to pray always. We're instructed not to lose heart. We're instructed to perform the, the works that he performed or that he prepared for us to do in our Christian lives. So there's a lot of things that are direct commands from God that clearly are his will. But, you know, if you were to ask me, well, should I take this job or not? I don't know. Should I move from here and move over there? I don't know. There's some things we simply do not know. And you have to weigh the evidence and Finally, you have to make a decision. And some people are paralyzed by making those decisions. When it comes to doing certain specific things in your life, we may not know exactly what God's will is until we step through that, that opportunity, through that doorway. And so we have to cast. We have to make that decision. 
There are some things that we do not know. God likes it that way, I believe. And the reason he likes it that way is because it keeps us dependent upon him. We're forced to trust him completely because we don't know what will happen tomorrow. So we have to make a decision. But then you also see there's a commitment involved. Look at what it says. It says, cast what? Your bread. It doesn't say cast my bread. It doesn't say cast bread in general. You're not casting someone else's bread. You're casting your bread. Now, bread was a very fundamental substance of life. Even today it is. It sustains us. So you not only have the decision, but you also have the commitment that follows up the decision. I'll never forget when over 27 years ago I made a commitment in front of several hundred people and God to marry my wife and to love her and to care for her till death do us part and she made that commitment to me. How time flies. <laughs> but you know what? That was a commitment. And I remember weighing that commitment heavily in the years before we got married. This is a big decision. See, today we don't put so much weight on that decision. Uh, couples decide to live together for a while thinking somehow that's going to help their married life down the road. That doesn't help. That harms because you're not following God's plan. So we have to be careful. But marriage is a commitment. And so he's saying, first of all, make the decision to cast, but then what are you going to cast? You're going to cast your bread. You're going to cast the very substance of life upon the waters. But then also it says you will find it. There's a reward involved. Isn't that a, a, a great concept that God asks us to make a decision, to make a commitment, but then he rewards us when those decisions and commitments are within his word. He says it's coming back to you. See, there is a reward when you make a commitment based upon the word of God. Now, whether that reward comes back to us on this side of glory or that side of glory, that's another subject. We don't know. But the Bible does say that we will receive a 100-fold reward will come back to us. Don't get wrapped up in this world. Don't get so wrapped up what's going on here on earth because this world is not our home. We're just passing through. So the reward may not come on this side of glory. And to be honest with you, that can be kind of discouraging at times. It can be discouraging to be faithful and, and to serve the Lord year after year after year and not see any fruit. Think of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. God gave him a command to go and be a prophet. And by the way, nobody's going to listen to you, Jeremiah, but just do what I tell you to do. That can be very discouraging, especially when you look around and you see, you know, other ministries or other businesses growing, and you're thinking, boy, what am I doing wrong? You may not be doing anything wrong. You're just called to be faithful to what God has called you to do. And you may not receive your reward on this side of glory. But you definitely will receive it on the other side. We just don't know. Even Jesus said, every cup of cold water given in my name, there'll be a reward for. Every casting of the bread will be rewarded. Why? Because it's a step of faith. And so we see the decision, the commitment, the reward. But then also, look at this verse. It says, it brings up the hard word, patience. After many days. See, that's hard to live with, especially if you're a personality like me. I don't have a lot of patience. I just don't. And we have to learn to trust him each and every day. And it takes faith. It takes trust. We're called to believe in God's faithfulness, in God's care for us. And when we release that bread upon the waters, it should be just that, a step of faith. Saying that, you know what? God promises that that will come back to me. Whether it's on this side of glory or the next, who knows? See, we shouldn't be looking at it like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot, so I'm not going to give anything. 
That's the wrong way to look at it. As believers, there are certain things that we do not know, we don't understand. And we're forced to rely on him. That's what he desires. It may involve risk, but he will reward it as he sees fit. If not now, then when we see him. And so this faith takes decision, commitment, reward, and patience. And we can all see that in our lives each and every day. But also, not just in terms of faith, but in terms of enthusiasm. Look at what he says in verse 2 here. He says, give a portion to seven or even to eight. What's he saying? He's saying be generous. Be generous. Don't be stingy. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. See, the point here is that you should be generous with as many as you can. And then some. That's what we're called to do. The Bible teaches that we should be generous with as many as we can, regardless of what may come tomorrow. Now, there's such a thing of planning and, 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 and you know, uh, setting up um, for your future, those kind of things. That's fine. But don't be so tied into that that it makes you a stingy person. See, it's, it's God's responsibility, not ours, to take care of us tomorrow to repay us for the good that we do on this side of glory. Don't worry about the idea that, well, boy, if I, if I help this person, maybe I won't have enough for me. That's not the proper biblical mindset to have. What if tomorrow, you know, it's all gone? Well, so be it. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. See, we shouldn't be thinking that way. We should be thinking with the idea of, you know what? Hey, God has blessed me. I want to bless others. Proverbs 19.17 tells us, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. Notice, he's lending to the Lord. And he will pay back. The Lord will pay back what he has given. We're promised that. Either in this life or the life to come. Even in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 the scripture says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. I don't know about you, but boy, I love that verse. That God takes note of a life of service given to him. You know, and that's what really ministry is. Ministry is giving up your dreams, giving up what you want to do and submitting to what God has for you to do. And sometimes that can be painful. Sometimes that can look like even the wrong decision. I've known pastors that have had a full career lined up, very well-to-do career, and they walked away from it because God called them to serve him in the ministry. We also see here in Luke, the Lord had a lot to say about this aspect of helping others and, and um, things like that. And in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, he shares a story. He says, He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. In other words, you don't just give to people that can give back, is the idea. Verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Then you will be blessed, he says, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. See, being generous and having enthusiasm about our giving for the Lord is what he desires, is what he commands. He doesn't tell us, well, you just need to worry about what you don't know. You know, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Is the stock market going to go up or down? It's irrelevant. If you see someone in need, he says, address it. Do it now. Down in Luke chapter 16, verse 9, he says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Chapter 16, verse 9 in Luke. Well, what does he mean by that? Does that mean that Wealth is unrighteous? No, he's not saying that. What he's saying is that 
wealth or, or money is, is simply a, uh, it's just a thing. It's not good or bad. See, in our mindset, a lot of times in Christianity, we think, well, if someone's wealthy, that's bad. It's bad to have a lot of things. No, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as those things don't have you. And so he says here that it's not unrighteous to have wealth. He's basically just saying there's no righteousness or unrighteousness in wealth itself. It's just a thing. It's not good or bad. It depends what you do with it. So his point here is to what? How do you make friends? Well, you give them money. If you give people money, they're going to be your friends, right? We see that in our society today, even in the world of politics. And so he says, be generous here, but then he says, so that when it fails, what fails? The money fails. The money runs out. That's how generous you're to be. The money runs out. They what? Who? The people that you helped with your money may receive you into eternal dwellings. Wow. What Solomon's saying is, you know what? We're called to cast our bread upon the waters. Be generous. And you know what? When you get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of things that tie us to each other in heaven itself. And one is when people that you have ministered to or that you have helped out, or that somehow you have benefited, what is it going to be? It's going to be a joyous reunion. See, the Bible teaches that we should be generous with as many as we can, regardless of what tomorrow may bring. Now, we're not called to be irresponsible. You know, that wouldn't be wise either. But it's God's responsibility to take care of tomorrow. It's God's responsibility to repay us. Don't worry about what you won't have after you give it away. God will take care of you. So in light of what we don't know, we should rely on God. And we should do so with faith. We should do so with enthusiasm in our lives. You know, I praise God for people in our, in our church here that give with enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, they give enthusiastically. When we tell them there's a need, boy, they run to that need and say, here, how can we help out? And sometimes it's, it's people that are very generous with what they have. And it's not the amount. It's not the amount they give. You know, it's, it's, it's the attitude of the heart. See, and that's what's so important. In Psalm 37, verse 5, David said this, I have been young and now I'm old. <laughs> Sounds like I, that's my story, right? I've been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen, he says, the righteous forsaken or his children, God's children, begging for bread. God always seems to come along at the right time and give us what we need. Now, it may not be a castle on a hill. It may not be you know, a job that's, boy, of our wishes and dreams. But you know what? He supplies our needs. He meets us and he supplies our needs. He cares for us. Psalm 84, verses 11 and 12 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. What a blessed promise that is. And then it says in verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Blessed is the name of the Lord. Amen? I mean, he gives, he takes away, but blessed be his name. It's, it's really an adventure to be a Christian and to live a life of faith, to trust in God, to see how he's going to meet your next, next need. You know, you, 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 you climb up on that tree and you get out on the limb and you're, you're practicing your faith, and you look over, and you see somebody sawing the limb off. I mean, that can unnerve you. That can really upset you. But you know what? God says, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of you. Yeah, there's a certain amount of risk in serving the Lord. There's a certain amount of risk in coming to Christ. But don't worry about it. The Lord will take care of you. You can't outgive the Lord. 
And the Lord will always pay you back, either now or later. So cast your bread upon the waters. Give generously. Don't think about tomorrow. So you see, what we don't know motivates us. But we see it also here. We see the explanation behind such dependence. Why are we called to be so dependent on the Lord? Well, he says there, you don't know what evil may come. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We can't run away from what God has determined for us. And we don't need to worry about tomorrow. You know, there's so many people today with this virus, with these riots, they're coming unglued emotionally. They're really struggling. Some people are going into depression. Some people just have intense anxiety. And you know what? It is what it is. God will watch out for us. God will take care of us. We can leave that with the one who promised to take care of all of our needs. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. So the first point in our outline here, it, the lack of knowledge motivates us to rely on God for the results and the rewards of our labor. Well, secondly, it motivates us, the lack of knowledge does, motivates us to resist the tendency to do nothing because of what we may fear may happen. It motivates us to resist the tendency to do nothing because of what we fear may happen. You know, a lot of people live their lives afraid of what may happen. They're just paralyzed by fear. That's what fear does. Fear is what? Fear is a lack of control. You know, when you climb in an airplane, some people are terrified to fly. Why? Because they're not in control. And they have a fear of what may happen. And so they never go anywhere. You know, you have to conquer that fear. Put it to rest. What's going to happen is going to happen. Or, you know, some people, you know, I've talked to some people, they never want to go to a doctor. Why? Because they're afraid, you know, of what they may find. Oh, they'll find cancer. They go to the doctor, they get the news. Oh, you know, we, we picked up some scan and uh, there's a possible tumor here or there or whatever. And you, you know, you do your homework. Well, is it benign? Is it malignant? Well, it's malignant. Okay. And inevitably, after the whole diagnosis process, you sit in the doctor's office and, and either you ask them this question, they probably usually don't bring it up, but inevitably you say, well, how long do I have? <laughs> how long do I have to live? When you stop and think about it, that's a really stupid question, even to ask a doctor. And if he was honest with you, he'd say, you know what, I don't know. But they're never honest. They're never, I shouldn't say they're never honest, but a lot of them have big egos, so they don't want to admit they don't know anything. So they'll give you a prognosis. Oh, you got one to three months. You know, I've heard people that have been, said, said they were going to be dead in 30 days, and they're still alive years later. We just don't know. And other people... You know, boy, they've exercised and they keep their body fit and trim and they're just, you know, the epitome of health. They eat all the right food and exercise, excellent health, and they're out jogging one day and they drop over dead. I mean, go figure, right? It's just, you don't know these things. We don't know when we may die. One thing we're assured of, pending the Lord's return, is we will die. We just don't know when. But you know, the one thing that has kept my head thinking biblically is the simple fact that we all die on time. Period. We all die on time. I mean, maybe you've gone through the process of going to the doctor. I remember several years ago, I went to the dermatologist, had a little thing on my arm, and was asking about that. She said, well, take your shirt off. I said, well, I don't have to. It's just here on my arm. Take your shirt off. So you take your shirt off, and... Immediately, she zeroed in on something on my shoulder here. And within a matter of, you know, 20 minutes, she's saying, do you mind if I take a biopsy of that? I'm like, well, ah, go ahead. And I'm thinking she's going to, you know, scrape the skin a little bit. Well, she numbed it up. I didn't know what she was doing. 
And uh, the next morning when I took the bandage off, it looked like she took a melon baller and took out a chunk of my shoulder. I thought, good night, what's going on here? And I remember getting the phone call a couple days later, or the next day, oh, can you come in? Well, what's the result? Well, you need to come in. And I thought, oh, that's not good news. And they informed me that I had this rare cancer called DFSP. And I thought, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, what, what, what's the end result here? And I remember the doctor saying, well, it's very, very, very rare. Some studies say only 1 in 100,000 people are diagnosed with this. Other studies say it's 1 in 1 million. So it's a very rare form of cancer. And it kind of goes under the, the skin and it spider webs out. It's very slow growing, which is good. But then I remember them telling me, if it gets to your vital organs, pretty much you're done. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's not good. But what do we do about it? And you had to walk through that process. And I don't even think about it today. That was probably, I don't know, 10 years ago. I don't even think about it today. But I remember at the time, I was thinking pretty heavily about it. And you know, I, the body of Christ prayed, and I remember even um, one of our elders, John Worthington, came down to the, the, the uh, operation when I was having this thing taken out with my wife and I as a form of support. I never forget that day. But I just thought, well, it is what it is. You gotta walk through this. See, news like that can paralyze you if you allow it to. It can paralyze us with fear. Uh, never forget the doctors. I was talking to my brothers. They were still alive then, two of them. And, and one, my brother, my brother Bob says, oh, I had that behind my ear, that same kind of cancer. And here's what they do, and he told me all about it. And I was sharing that with the surgeon. And he said, that's impossible. He goes, this is so rare. It, it, it doesn't happen within family. You know, I said, well, he said he had it. I don't know. So I double checked with my brother. They wanted to line up a whole study on our family. Like they've never seen this before. Two brothers in the same family with this kind of cancer because it was so rare. Really odd. But then my brother passed away, not from that cancer, by the way, but, but from something else. So they never got to do their little study. But see, you can be paralyzed by the fear of something like that. And we have to remember that simple principle that our days and our care are not in our hands, they're in his hands. And I think it's a very important thing that we realize. So it, the lack of knowledge sometimes motivates us to resist the tendency to do nothing because of what may happen because of fear. Look at what he says here in verses three and four. He says, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. First sub-point here, he can't control, we can't control certain things. We can't control some things. That's what he's saying there in verse 3. If the clouds full of rain, it's going to rain. You don't know that. I've been in, in areas of the country where, boy, it just looks like it's going to come down hard, and it never rains. Every fall down in the desert, it used to be so hot and humid, and the thunderheads would be up in the mountains there above Hemet, and, and you're thinking, boy, it's really going to rain hard. And it never rained. You know, eventually it would, but boy, you, you would just feel it like it's going to rain, and it never did. We don't know when it's going to do those things. I mean, the meteorologists do the best they can with science, but pretty much they just guess because we don't know some things. We don't know what's going to happen. And even if we did, we couldn't change it. Even if we did know what was going to happen, we couldn't change it. I mean, if I told you a year ago, a year ago, last year, 2019, at this time, if I said, you know what, a year from now, the economy in this nation is going to be broken. There's going to be a massive pandemic, virus pandemic, and we're going to have to stay in our house for months. They're going to actually close down churches and businesses all across the nation and all across the world. You would say, I'm absolutely nuts. But look at what we're living with today. 
Even if I would have told you, yeah, there's going to be unrest in the streets and rioting, and you would have said, not in America. <laughs> you can't control some things. We can't. We just don't know, and we can't control certain things. See, but too many people, because of their fear of what they cannot control, will do absolutely nothing. See, and that's, that's Solomon says that's folly. That's no way to live your life. You know, we all die on time. So enjoy your life. Get out there and conquer fear if it's holding you down in a certain area of your life. But also, secondly here, we can't concern ourselves with what we think may happen. We can't concern ourselves of what we think may happen. I remember before my sister passed away, we were back there and helping her with the house, and I remember talking to her about some of the trees around the house. And I said, you know, they're, they're kind of close to the house, and they're big trees, and they don't look, they're kind of leaning, and I'm thinking maybe we should take them down. And she said, well, why would you do that? I said, well, what if they fall on the house? She was so what if they fall on the house? How are you going to control that? You know, she just had a very simplistic view of things. Now, eventually she came around, and we did have some of them trimmed back and cut down. But you know what? You can't control things like that. I think of the big oak trees here on our property at the church. You know, boy, if that oak tree over the Fellowship Hall ever gives way, that Fellowship Hall is a, a, a goner because that's a big tree. But you know what? You can't concern yourselves with what you think may happen. Just because you, you see some ominous signs, it doesn't know, mean that we know what is going to happen. See, in spite of all of our knowledge, there are many major issues of life that ba basically keep us in the dark. And it's not even worth worrying about. Even... In the last couple nights, you know, people talk, well, I don't know, the rioters are going to, hey, if the rioters come, the rioters come. I'm sure the police will deal with them. So be it. I mean, what are they going to, I mean, I understand it's a very serious thing, but you can't worry about it. You can prepare for it, but it doesn't do any good to worry about it. So you see here where lack of knowledge motivates us to rely on God for the results and rewards of our labor. Secondly, it motivates us to resist the tendency to do nothing because of what we fear may happen. And then thirdly, it motivates us to respond to the opportunity that God gives us. It, it motivates us. The lack of knowledge motivates us to respond to the opportunities that God gives us or affords to us. Look at verses 5 and 6. As you do not know, the way of the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Now, some people say, well, it must be the, the way of the wind. Uh, some translations say wind, but it, it means spirit. Um, they think because he just talked about the rain and the storm. But it really has the idea of the human spirit here because he, he connects it to the bones in the womb of a woman with a fetus? No, it says with what? With child. With child. See, even Solomon understood that even an unborn child is just that. It's a child. It's not a mass. It's not something to be discarded. We don't know how God works. I mean, if you can explain how God forms a child in a woman's womb and, and then it's born into a human being, I mean, if you can completely understand that, and I'm not just talking scientifically, I mean, just the miracle of life. We hear that phrase so much, but it's so true because we don't know how God does it. We don't know how God works. Too often we think we know how God works and then he has to show us, no, you don't have any idea how I work. In Psalm 139, just to remind you of the preciousness of the human life, it's written there in verse 13, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, 
intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What's that mean? That basically means you're going to die on time. That God has a purpose, he has a plan. Your days are numbered. That's a wonderful thing. There's no mistake about it. There's no chance. There's no risk. God doesn't operate that way. Even in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 24 and 25, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. So many times people, especially science, scientists, they think that they have, you know, that they have the gospel on everything and they completely understand everything. But when it really boils down to it, they don't understand a whole lot of things because they can't explain the origin of life. Oh, they think they can with evolution, which is a lie from the pit of hell. Makes no sense whatsoever. It definitely doesn't hold water when it comes to the biblical account of creation. But when you think about it, he does so many things every day that are surprising to us. We simply do not know how God will choose to work his will out in our lives. We don't know that. We know he's in control of everything because that's what the Bible says. But we cannot assume that we know exactly how he's going to work. We just don't know. Well, secondly here, not only do we not know how he works, but look at verse 6. We don't know what God may prosper. We don't know what God may bless. He says, in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether you alike or both alike will be good. You know, when he says there, we should not let down or withhold our hand. It has the idea of discouragement. That's the idea. In other words, oh, I don't know if these seeds are even going to do anything. Why even plant them? I'm just going to give up and go home. See, we don't know which one he's going to bless. We don't know which endeavor he will choose to bless. God works in mysterious ways, beloved. Sometimes the way God blesses us just blows our mind. And we're thinking, why would God bless that? Psalm 104, verse 23 says, Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. We do not know what he will prosper and what he won't. See, God may choose to prosper something in your life that you never even dreamed that he would prosper. And sometimes those things are not, in our view, good things. Sometimes God chooses to allow us to go through hardship, to go through trials, and then he blesses them, and he prospers us as a result. Look at Job, what Job went through, without any reason. I mean, God had a purpose and a plan, but in Job's mind, why is this happening to me? I haven't done anything to deserve this. And then he had all his friends come and accuse him. I mean, think about that. But sometimes God can make you better through times like that. When we continue to trust him, when we continue to rely on him. See, when we stop relying on him and stop trusting him in the hard times, what happens? It doesn't make us better. It makes us what? It makes us bitter. It makes us shake our fist at God. How dare you allow this to happen to me? You know, many people are struggling right now. First the virus, now these riots. You've, boy, I pray for these business owners. I mean, think about it. You, you put your entire life into your business and it's gone like that. And it doesn't look like there's any help down the road. Boy, if that won't drive you to your knees in prayer, I don't know what will. God may have a purpose to bless you through that trial. 
through that hard thing, that hard place you're at right now, God may turn that around for your betterment. I think of Joni Erickson Tata, who is a young, young woman, and she uh, had a diving accident and became a quadriplegic at a very young age. And God has used her in incredible ways for the kingdom of God. Incredible ways. Ways that she never would have been used otherwise. All of her hurts, all of her troubles. Now she's got other ailments going on. And yet she continues to serve the Lord faithfully. I mean, I can't even conceive of that. I mean, I, everything within you would want to have a big pity party for yourself. But when those times hit, you got to trust God to get you through it. Because we don't know how God will work and we don't know what God may prosper. So the lack of knowledge motivates us to rely on God. It, re it motivates us to resist the tendency to do nothing because of fear of what may happen. It motivates us to respond to the opportunities that God gives us. You know, sometimes we need to be reminded about the opportunities that God gives us, even when it comes to salvation. Sometimes God gives us the opportunity to hear the gospel, even to be taught the word of God, to have a Bible, to be able to read it. I, I pray that you're taking the most of that opportunity, that you're responding to the light that God has given you. Because my friend, if you're not, what are you waiting for? I plead with you to trust in Christ as your Savior today. Well, verses 7 and 8, it motivates us, the lack of knowledge motivates us to remember that many days will be difficult. Wow. Many days will be difficult. See, up to this point, up to, to verse 6, he's been talking about faith. He's been talking about the risk involved in trusting God and, 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 and all that's involved there in our minds. God's always faithful to fulfill his promises, so really it's not that risky, but it seems risky at the time. So he's been talking about that, and now he switches over and he wants us to see that not only is is faith key, but joy is key in our lives. Joy is key in our lives. Because when we face life that includes difficult issues and difficult times and difficult struggles, a life of joy is desirable. See, joy is that deep-seated contentment, that deep-seated blessedness, restfulness that God gives you. It's not happiness. Happiness is, comes and goes. Happiness depends on your happenstance. You know, if you get a raise at work, wow, I'm happy. Well, what if they cut your job? Are you still happy? No. But see, the question is, do you have joy through all those things? Do you have an understanding that even in the bad times, God is somehow looking out for you. He's working these things out to make you the kind of person that he desires you to be. And what it reminds us here of two things. In verse 7, he says, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Well, first here, under this point, that it motivates us to remember that many days will be difficult. First of all, it reminds us to enjoy the time you have. So many Christians are so worried and frantic about their lives that they can't even enjoy two minutes. You know, I've talked to people who... You know, boy, they go out and they plan this wonderful time and they're worrying about the whole thing. Wow, oh, I wonder if the plane's going to be on time. I wonder if this is going to be... You know, I've learned to just say, yeah, it is what it is. You know, it is what it is. God has a plan and a purpose for us. And it benefits us to enjoy that. You wake up every day and you thank God for that first breath of fresh air. You're able to get out of your bed and go to your, have your coffee and your devotion, whatever it might be. Thank God for that. Because you don't know what the day may bring. Enjoy the time that you have. 
And it also reminds us to evaluate the future carefully. He says, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Days of darkness will be many. So he says here first, let him rejoice in them all, right? In them all. In all of the years, whether they're good, whether they're bad, you rejoice in all of them. But then he says, because part of those, those days, part of those years, are, there's going to be filled with darkness. And it's not only going to be some, it's going to be many, it says. See, our real identity cannot be wrapped up in what is ultimate vanity. Our real identity has to be wrapped up in Christ. You know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of men and women who their whole identity is captivated by their career. If they were to lose their job, their life would fall apart. Others are captivated by their family members. If they were to lose their family members, their life would fall apart. See, we need to be captivated by Christ and Christ alone. That's what reminds us to evaluate the future carefully. We don't know what tomorrow may hold. I may not be here tomorrow. Your family member may not be there tomorrow. We're not guaranteed that. And so we should, we should live each day to the fullest. Well, what I don't know motivates me to rely on God, resist the tendency to do nothing because of fear. It motivates us to respond to the opportunities that God affords to us. It motivates us to remember that there will be many days that will be difficult. But fifthly, next to last point here, it motivates us to rejoice while we can, but with a sense of accountability to God. To rejoice while we can, but with a sense of accountability to God. Look at what it says in verse 9. Rejoice, O man, in your youth. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, a lot of people look at young people as foolhardy. Oh, they're just, all they want to do is have a good time. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, you have, it has to come with responsibility. You know, we want our kids to grow up much too early. Kids can't be kids anymore. Even in the area of sports. You know, I remember growing up, I mean, we had basically Pop Warner that you started like in, I think in junior high or late elementary. And uh, Pop Warner football or, or Little League. I mean, now you have kids out there that can barely walk. You know, trying to hit a ball with a, a bat or, or, or play football. I mean, it's crazy. I think we, we need to allow our children to grow up before we start doing some of these things with them. So he says, rejoice, O man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Think back on the days of my youth. I'm thinking, wow, did a lot of crazy things, but had a wonderful time, had a blast. No regrets. Walk in the ways of your youth. Well, not no regrets. I have some regrets because they did some stupid things. But <laughs> with that being said, it says, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that all these things God will bring you into judgment. See, this is the underlying theme, really, of the whole book. The great tragedy in our lives today is we're trying to enjoy life without any sense of accountability to God. So we're just building a big castle for ourselves filled with all this stuff thinking, well, it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. That's why he starts off saying, hey, cast your bread upon the waters. Be generous with what I blessed you with. Because he's going to hold you accountable. Yeah, he wants you to rejoice. He wants you to have a life full of joy. One commentator said, verse 9 is no carte blanche or open season where anything goes. That's not what Solomon is saying here. He's not saying just let go and let live or whatever. That's not what, that's not what he's saying. Remember, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. See, the problem today is we have all these blessings, but we don't have any fear for the Lord. We feel that there's no accountability because our society has taken God and they've written him off. He's not mentioned in the schools. He's not mentioned in the education system. I mean, if they had their way, his name would be taken off the money that's printed. There's a, there's a hatred 
of God. There's not a fear of God. Look at what's going on in the streets all around us. There's no fear of God. That's really the problem. The problem is from government down, there's no fear of God. See, when you have a healthy fear of God, you want a desire to do what's right. It keeps our lives in check. It keeps us in line. And without that fear of God, we'll be robbed of that deep joy and blessing and zest that God wants us to have in our lives. Well, lastly, it motivates us to remove anything in our lives that would hinder our joy in our walk with the Lord. Look at what it says in verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart or sorrow. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. He names two things here in particular. It includes emotional disappointments. That's what he says here. Remove vexation or sorrow from your heart. The idea is bitterness and anger, resentment. See, all those things are meaningless. When you hold on to things like that, it doesn't do you any good. All those things are temporary. They're, they're transitory. And there's so much we don't know about it. We, we don't know why God allows certain things into our lives. You know, I, sometimes in counseling, people will say, you know, well, when I was younger and, and this horrible thing happened to me, I get it. It's difficult. But you know what? Even in that difficulty, there's a purpose God has. And so many times we can't get over it. You have to push through it. Trusting God to help you deal with it. I mean, what, really, he's saying, why go on living with anything but the joy of the Lord? I mean, if you just focus on your your situation, your circumstances, you're going to be miserable. There's so much we don't know. And we don't know why God allows certain things into our life that cause us emotional disappointment. You know, somebody asked me one time, do you ever wonder why, you know, when you were a younger child, your parents passed away? Why that happened to you at such a young age? I said, no. Lost my mom when I was seven, dad, or mom when I was three, dad when I was seven. Lost a beloved brother when I was 14. You know, I don't know why that happened. That's, that's, there's no reason to even ask that question in my mind. You know, you can sit around and think about it all day long. I don't, I, there's no answer. It was God's purpose. It was God's plan. We need to get it out of our lives, these, this anger and bitter and resentment or whatever, because it's meaningless. It doesn't add anything to you. Ask God to heal your heart if it's hurting. And ask God for the wisdom to live each day to the fullest. Well, the next thing here, it not only includes emotional disappointments, but it includes moral defilement, because he says you're to remove evil from your flesh. He says put away pain from your body. The idea of evilness there. Put it away. You must be free from those injuries to the inner man that so quickly cripple the joy of life. There's a lot of people who deal with severe depression and, and severe emotional distress because they've had a horrible upbringing or they some, had something traumatic happen to them. And you, if you're one of those people, you need to turn to God. God will give you the care you need. And sometimes he's the only one that can do it. Sometimes people go to counselor after counselor after counselor just wasting their money because they're not going to a, a counselor that's speaking truth to them. They're going to a psychoanalyst counselor that believes in all the psychobabble of the world. And they're not implementing biblical principles to this person. It's sad. See, the subtle insinuation of adversity that has led to a momentary indulgence in moral defilement leaves believers with no joy. 
You know, some people think, wow, what's the use of even living at all? See, you may not know what God is going to do tomorrow. But the attitude we should have as believers is, but today I'm going to live for the Lord. Because I'm one of his children. I'm trusting in him. He's caring for me. And yeah, I got a lot of issues. We all do. Here, God, deal with it. And press on. Continue to serve him. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Even with all this horrendous stuff that's going on around us, trust me, God has a purpose and a plan for this. And it will be carried out according to his wishes. And so I pray this study tonight on the subject of the lack of knowledge motivating us, I pray that it motivates us to live each day fuller for the Lord and for his service. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that there's a lot of things we don't understand in life. There's a lot of things that we don't know. And Solomon spoke to some of those things tonight. But Father, I pray that that lack of knowledge would not um, paralyze us in fear. But Father, that we would continue to rely on you. That we would continue to trust you. That we would remember that, yeah, there are going to be difficult days. But we're called to rejoice through those difficult days. And we're called to live a life that's sanctified. To remove anything in our lives that would hinder our joy in our walk with the Lord. Father, give us the grace. Give us the ability to do that through the power of your spirit. And Lord, we do pray for our country. We pray, Lord, that the government would step up and do what they're called to do. To punish the evildoers and protect the righteous. That's the one biblical rule of government. All the other stuff is just politics. But Lord, when they fail to do the elementary, fundamental things they're called to do, we see the result. It's chaos. And sin reigns. And Lord, we pray for these people who are out looting and harming people. We pray that, God, that you would strike fear into their hearts. Father, that they would fall before you, confess their sin, acknowledge you as Lord and Savior. Lord, we don't know how you're working through all this, but I know you are. Father, it's unnerving to see a young man's life snuffed out before it's time. Lord, that, that is very troubling by someone who's supposed to be protecting that person. That's a, that's a hard thing to conceive of. But Lord, I pray that we would continue to pray for those that fill that role as far as police. Lord, that we would not rebel against authority as so many have today. Father, we know that that is not the, the overwhelming majority. That's the minority. And Lord, I pray that they would be dealt with just, uh, dealt with quickly and just, justly, and, and Lord, that they would have their day in court. And Father, we do pray for families that have been adversely affected during this time. And Lord, we pray that somehow that you would bring someone across their path that knows you, that knows the gospel, that will be able to explain to them that life is more than this earth. And if you're listening tonight and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, I pray that you would realize that you need to cry out to him. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Help me put my trust in Christ, in Christ alone, for the salvation of my soul. If you believe that Christ came, that he lived a perfect life here on earth, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, that he died for your sins, you cry out to him to save you, he will. He'll free you from that burden of sin. He'll make you into the, the person that he desires you to be. So Father, I pray you take us through the rest of the week safely. Pray for our local police, you'd keep them safe as well as our local governing authorities. Pray that, Lord, you'll give us wisdom. If we should open up on Sunday, I pray that you'll prepare the path for that to happen. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.